It's a privilege to be here with you. I'd like to welcome the guests that we have with us. Mr. Ames was scheduled to be here this Sabbath, and I was planning to be here next Sabbath, but he's not feeling well. My throat's a little stuffed up, so hopefully we'll all get through the sermon today. Before we start the sermon, I wanted to share a little story with you about a young man who was given a parrot as a gift. But this parrot had a bad attitude, and he had some very bad language. Anytime somebody would walk into the room, he'd start uh, saying bad things and criticizing and making smart remarks. And finally, the young man had had enough, and he said, you've got to stop this or I'm going to throw you in the freezer. And the parrot went nuts, and he started throwing things around and kicking and squawking. So the guy grabbed him and threw him in the freezer. And he heard everything in there being thrown around, kicked around, and the parrot was squawking away. And all of a sudden, everything went quiet. And the young man thought, well, maybe maybe he's hurt. Maybe he's freezing. Maybe I better go check him out. So he opened the door, and the parrot hopped out of the freezer with his head bowed, very quiet, very humble. And he said, I, I, I'm really sorry. I'll never do anything like that again. I'm sorry. Please, never throw me back in there. I'm sorry. And the young man said, wow, what brought this all about? And the parrot said, I've learned my lesson. I've learned my lesson. I'll never do it again. I'll never do it again. Please don't throw me in the freezer. And the young man said, well, that's fine. I'll not do that anymore. And then the parrot said very quietly, can I ask you just one question? And the young man said, go ahead. He said, "Uh, that turkey (laughs) that I saw in the freezer, he lost his feet, lost his feathers, and lost his head. What did he do (laughs) to get thrown in the freezer? You know, we don't throw animals in the freezer. But there is a lesson there. The parrot said he learned a lesson. When he saw something, I'm going to talk about some lessons today. And I'd like you to put this story on a shelf in your mind for just a little bit. Because we're going to be talking about some lessons, too, that we can learn, that we need to learn. As we begin the sermon, I'd like to ask a couple of personal questions that I'd like you to think about as we prepare to go through the sermon. And these are personal questions, but they're important questions because how you answer the question will determine how you're going to live your life. It'll determine where you're going to go in the future and probably what your future reward is going to be. And these are questions that are relevant both to young people and to older people. first question is, do you have a goal or a purpose for your life? Do you have a goal or do you have goals and purposes for your life? You might think for a minute, what are your goals? What are your purposes for your life? Make a lot of money? Get a job? Get married? Have a family? Maybe travel around the world? What are some of your goals? 
Then I'd like you to ask a question. Are your goals or are your purposes for your life bigger than yourself? Are your goals, are your purposes bigger than yourself? You know, if our goal is to make a lot of money, that only affects us. If it's to find a wife or a husband, that's really kind of affects us. But do your goals, your purpose in life, are they bigger than yourself? You know, I saw an item on the Internet recently that the gentleman who founded Wikipedia describes himself as an objectivist. What's that? An objectivist. The definition of that word is the proper moral purpose of one's life is the pursuit of one's own happiness. The pursuit of one's own happiness. He just wants to be happy. And that probably describes a lot of people today. But his goal is not much bigger than himself. Another question to think about. Do you have a sense of mission? Do you have a sense of mission in your life? Is there something you want to accomplish? Is there a cause that you feel part of? You want to change the world. What kind of cause do you want to be part of? You know, the people today that want to repeal the don't ask and don't tell policy in the U.S. military. There are people that want to save the polar bears, save the whales. What cause do you have? Do you have a cause? What would you like to change? What would you like to accomplish? You might want to think about these things as you contemplate setting some goals for your life. As a young person, what do you want to do with your life? Where do you want to go? What do you want to accomplish? Let's look at a couple of other questions. Have your religious beliefs influenced your goals? Will your religious beliefs influence your goals? Will help you determine where you're going to go in life. Why did God call you into contact with His church? You know, just to sit here? Just to go to sermons and Bible studies? Just to go to the feast? Why did God call you into contact with His church that teaches what it does? What is the mission of God's church? And then kind of compare how your goals fit with that mission. How does that mission, the mission of the church, relate to your life choices? And finally, what could you or should you be doing now to prepare to accomplish the goals that you're thinking about? Those might be pretty heavy questions, but I'd like you to write them down and think about them. Because how you answer these questions will really determine how you're going to live your life, where you're going to go in life. And to a degree, I think, where you're going to wind up and what your reward is going to be. In the sermon today, I'd like to outline some major challenges and major opportunities that face Christians today 
in the church of God. If you're looking for a title, it could be Challenges and Opportunities. Or it could be The Wise Parrot and the Frozen Turkey. (laughs) Because they'll relate together, as you will see, as we get closer to the end of the sermon. But I'd like to emphasize as we go through the sermon today, talking about major challenges and major opportunities, how well you recognize these challenges and how you deal with these challenges and how well you prepare for the opportunities will determine how you're going to live your life. And it may determine whether or not you wind up in the kingdom of God and what sort of reward you have in the kingdom of God. So when you're thinking about planning your life, I remember talking, I was talking with our students this week in our class, that this is one of the questions I used to ask our boys as they were growing up. What do you want to do with your life? And I probably asked it so many times. They said, Dad, you've already asked us that question. (laughs) 10 or 15 times. But I was trying to get them to think, where do they want to go in life and how are they going to get there? A couple of things to keep in mind as you're contemplating goals. Now, young people can contemplate goals. You know, Samuel was a, a, a child when God called him, called to him, Samuel, Samuel. He was a very young child, but he began to let God work with him. Josiah, who became king of Israel, was eight years old when he became king. Eight years old. But apparently he made a choice at that time to live according to the laws of God, as his father David did. Esther was a young orphan girl. Very attractive, caught the eye of the king, but she was a young, courageous girl who had a sense of principles, who was courageous, who honored her elders. And God used these people. So as a young person, you can make up your mind to live according to the laws of God, to do things God's way. And not to compromise. As an older person, come in contact with the truth. You can make those same decisions. But a couple of guidelines just to think about as you contemplate setting some goals for yourself. I'll mention a number of scriptures. We'll not turn to all of them. But Matthew 6.33, Jesus told his disciples, Seek first the kingdom of God. Set your sights on being in the kingdom of God. I want to be there. And whatever it takes, I'm going to do. Set your focus on the kingdom of God, of being there, of serving there. Turn, if you would, to Matthew chapter 28. Matthew chapter 28. A couple of principles just to think about in setting goals. And it will apply to what we're going to be talking about a little bit later. In Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 and 20, it says, Go you therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them into the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things as I have commanded you. For lo, I am with you always. 
This is a mission that God gave to his church. This is part of our opportunity that we have to be able to be used by God. So this is something to think about, preparing for this kind of an opportunity. In Matthew chapter 20, another general principle, where Jesus again was talking with his disciples, and they had some goals that they had set for themselves. One wanted to be on his right hand, and one wanted to be on his left hand, and we just want these minor positions, that's all. We'd like to be number one and number two in your kingdom. But notice Jesus' response in Matthew chapter 20, beginning about verse 25. So Jesus called to them and to himself, and he said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. Now, Israelites do the same thing. People like to be in charge and tell everybody else what to do. The rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who are great exercise authority over them. They like to be in positions of authority. But he said, Yet it shall not be so among you. Whosoever desires to be great among you, let him be your servant. Whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. You know, Jesus Christ and God the Father is looking for people who desire to serve, to lift the burdens that other people labor under, that think beyond themselves, that have a goal that transcends themselves. You know, as a younger person or as an older person, if you set out to be a servant, to prepare to serve in a variety of ways, then God can use you. You know, if, if we're focused on ourselves then we limit what God can do with us. Another scripture principle to look at, go back to Proverbs chapter 4. Proverbs chapter 4. <clears throat> these are important principles that can guide us <clears throat> if we use these principles. Proverbs chapter 4, <clears throat> verses 25, 26, and 27. It says, let your eyes look straight ahead. In other words, focus on a goal. And your eyelids look right before you. Ponder the path of your feet. Think about where you want to go. Think about what you have to do to get there. Ponder the path of your feet. And let all your ways be established. Turn not to the right nor to the left, remove your foot from evil. In other words, you focus on a goal, and don't be distracted turning to the right or turning to the left, or being attracted by evil things. Stay focused on the goal. And again, it's important to select the right goal. <clears throat> One other principle in Psalm, <clears throat> Psalm 119. <clears throat> Psalms 119, verse 105. The Bible talks about <clears throat> David being a man after God's own heart. You know, as a young man or as an older man, you can focus on wanting to be a man after God's own heart. As a woman, you can focus on being a person after God's own heart. But notice what David says here in verse 105 of Psalm 119. He said, Your word, God, is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. In other words, it's your word that provides the guidance 
the direction, the uh, GPS system that Mr. League was talking about. <laughs> but if we're looking for directions in guiding our life, we go to God's Word. And if we use the directions there, as we will see in the sermon, we're going to wind up going in a direction where God can use us powerfully if we're willing to let God guide us. So think about some of these questions as we go through the sermon. What are your goals in life? What is your purpose? Do you have a sense of mission, a burning sense of mission, something that drives you ahead, something that motivates you, gets you out of bed in the morning, in some cases keeps you up later at night, because you've got a goal to accomplish. You've got a purpose to accomplish, a mission to accomplish. We also ask the question, how does the mission of the church mesh with your goals and with the purpose that you have for your life? Just think out loud a little bit. What are the, some of the missions, the goals, the purposes that Jesus Christ gave to his church? Where do you find them? Matthew 16, verse 15. Matthew, excuse me, Mark 16, 15. Jesus told his disciples, you go into all the world and preach the gospel. You've got a mission to go to the entire world. I think it's sad today that many people have fallen into this thing. Well, we just want to have a little house church and get together and talk about Jesus. The mission that the church was given by Jesus Christ was to go into all the world. To reach the entire continent, the entire globe, with the good news of the coming kingdom of God. The gospel that Jesus Christ died for the sins of mankind, that is going to come back to this earth and set up a government on this earth to totally change everything, to bring peace to this earth. That's the mission of the church, not just to sit in a little group. And talk about Jesus. You know, I'm speaking here to the headquarters congregation. Many of you work at headquarters. You're involved in writing articles and sending out materials. In serving the ministry and serving the brethren all around the world. You're part of this mission. And for those of you in other places, praying for the effectiveness of what is done. You're contributing your prayers, contributing your offerings, and, and, and so on. We're part of a team that God is putting together to do a job. And we're not just here to have social activities. They're important in their place. But we're here for a reason. We read the scripture in Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 and 20. We're to make disciples of all nations. You know, people hear the broadcast, they read the magazines, they contact the Internet, and then they want to make contact with us. They want somebody to come and talk with them. It was interesting, <clears throat> the Tomorrow's World presentation we did in Albuquerque, we passed out a feedback form. And one of the individuals that was there sent in the feedback form just the other day and made the comment, said, you are a, a, a man of God. You came here with a message, vital information. Thank you, thank you, thank you. See, we've got a job to do. Not just to sit around and talk about Jesus by ourselves. 
But we have got a message that Jesus Christ said, you take this to the world. We also have a job of warning this world, Ezekiel 3 and Ezekiel 33, Matthew 24, Mark 13, Luke 21, to explain to the world what is coming down the road. And what is coming is not going to be very pleasant, at least initially. I came across another article by Niall Ferguson, this British economist, teaches at Harvard. And he said, the world doesn't realize it, but America's finances are in worse shape than Greece and Portugal. He said, it may take the world about another year to figure that out before it all comes apart. Do we realize how close we may be to the end of the road for the Israelite nations around the world that have been blessed incredibly by God? but have turned their back on God. We have a job to warn the world about what is coming and why these consequences are coming. God just doesn't throw out plagues on people for no reason. We have been blessed incredibly by God. Why does everybody want to come here? But God is going to take those blessings away because as a nation... We are doing things that are an abomination in God's sight. So we need to understand some of these things. Let's turn finally to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. Part of the mission of God's church today that we're actually doing here in services today. Luke chapter 1, verse 17. talking about John the Baptist and one who would come or an organization that would come and fulfill this says he will also go before him that is a messenger will go before Jesus Christ preparing the way in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children an emphasis on the family and this is building on uh, Malachi chapter 4 verse 6 and the wisdom of the just and to make ready a people prepared for the Lord Part of our job as a church is to prepare a people to reign with Jesus Christ in the coming kingdom of God. That's why we're here, to prepare to teach, to prepare to turn the world right side up, to point people to the truth, to a way that leads to peace. This is why we're here. This is part of the mission of the church. But again, I ask the question, how does the mission of the church compare to the goals that you're setting for yourself? Are your goals in harmony with the mission of the church? Can you get in harmony with the mission of the church? Why are you in the church? Why did God call you into contact with the church? Now, you can look at a number of scriptures, Matthew 5, verses 14 through 16. We're to be lights and examples to the world. Lights and examples to the world. When we go to the feast in the fall, we roll into a community with 500 people or 1,000 people or whatever. Those communities know who we are. Oh, that's those Church of God people. See the big Bibles? See all the kids? (laughs) Look at all the money that they bring. (laughs) But you know, if they can also draw conclusions 
They're wonderful examples. They're outstanding people. They're humble. They're friendly. They're focused. They have a sense of mission. They're Christians. We've been called to be lights and examples to the world. Acts chapter 2 talks about repenting and changing and growing. That's why God has called us to repent from what, of, of what we were and what we've been and to change and to grow. Why are you in the church? Why did God call you to be part of his church? Why did he call you into contact with his church? John 15, verses 7 and 8. Jesus said to his disciples the night before he was crucified, If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire, and it shall be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit. And so you will be my disciples. Hey, what kind of fruit do we bear? You might want to check that every Friday night. Look in the mirror and ask yourself, what kind of fruit did I bear this week? Did I chew anybody out? Did I make a smart remark to somebody? Did I jump to a conclusion that was wrong about somebody? Did I gripe and complain? Or did I encourage people? Did I lift people up? Did I pour oil on troubled waters instead of gasoline? (laughs) What kind of fruit did we bear? It's good to check ourselves from time to time on these things. But notice Jesus' words. He said, if you abide in me, you know, if you're praying and studying on a regular basis, drinking in out of the word of God, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, You're running these scriptures through your mind, asking yourself, how would Jesus Christ react in this situation or that situation? Would he have flown off like I did? Would he have made the assumptions that I did? And we need to check ourselves from time to time on these things. Notice another big picture type of scripture. Let's turn to Revelation chapter 2, verses 26 and 27. And thinking, think about these scriptures in terms of setting goals for yourself. Where do you want to go? How do you want to use your time? Where would you like to be in five years and ten years? Where would you like to be? What would you like to do in the kingdom of God? Okay, Revelation chapter 2, <clears throat> verses twenty. 6 and 27. Promise here to one of the churches. It says, He who overcomes, she who overcomes, they who overcome, and keep my words unto the end. To him or to that person I will give power over nations. That's a little hard to contemplate right now. What does it mean to have power over nations? It would mean that you'd have the opportunity to straighten things out. To move an entire nation in a different direction. To change the school systems. To change the religions. To change the economic systems. To change the entertainment programs. Literally to change everything. But this is the promise. This is the opportunity 
that Jesus Christ was talking about, giving a message to his church. He who overcomes and keeps my works unto the end, to him I will give power over nations. Revelation 5.10 talks about the time in the future when we're going to reign on this earth. Not in heaven, but on this earth. This is the big picture. You know, I've used this example before when I was in graduate school in Mississippi. I was given a tour of the graduate school and was taken around and shown to different offices and came into this one office where an older gentleman, he'd been a retired department chairman, was sitting. And he was in there with a bunch of dusty old equipment. And I was introduced, this is Dr. Hogue, and this is his empire. I was coming into the church at that time. And I looked around this dusty old room with broken instruments and outdated equipment, and I thought, is that where I want to be in 25 or 30 years? I thought, no way. (laughs) I would rather focus on a scripture like this, to reign with Jesus Christ on this, in, in the coming kingdom of God on this earth and straighten things out. It's a different perspective that God makes available to those he's calling into contact with his church. You know, and his young people, whether you're 10, 11, 12, 15, 16, 18, 20, where do you want to be in five or ten years? What would you like to do in the coming kingdom of God? What would you like to straighten out? What would you like to change? You can begin to prepare now to begin to do some of those things, to build the character that's going to be needed to handle that type of responsibility. And one of the big challenges that people have made, even in Hollywood, that make it big. All of a sudden, they've got a lot of money. They've got a lot of fame. And then they get into drugs and they get into this and that and wind up killing themselves because they don't know how to handle. They don't have the character to handle the power and the privileges that they've been given. And it's a sad story. Elvis Presley, John Lennon, you pick the names. This is what happens to people that get fame and fortune without the character. God is building character within us. He's giving us challenges to deal with, decisions to make. And the decisions we make depend on the character that we build, which is all important. Let's look at one other scripture, looking ahead to the future. In Acts chapter 3, Acts chapter 3, beginning in verse 19. This is talking about what's coming down the road in a very positive way. This is one of the things we're going to have an opportunity to do if we set our goals right in harmony with God's word and we build the character that God then can use. Mr. Armstrong used to talk about this being a pivotal section of Scripture that everything hangs on. In verse 19... It says, repent, therefore, and be converted. This is what we have to do when God begins to work with us. That your sins may be blotted out so that the times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. There is a time of refreshing coming. That he may send Jesus Christ, who was preached to you before, whom heaven must receive until the times of restoration of all things 
when everything's going to be put back right, when the whole world is taught to worship the true God, to follow the laws of God, to realize that God is real, that he's going to intervene, and he has intervened in, in, in history, and he's going to do it again. You know, the world today doesn't believe God is real in many cases. It's just a figment of the imagination. I've used the story before. <clears throat> the philosophy course that I took in college, walked into the philosophy course, we saw a Bible on the desk of one of the, of the professor. He waited till we were all set down. He picked up the Bible, threw it across the room into the waste can. He said, see, no lightning. It's just a book. There's no God. And then he proceeded to share his philosophy with us. He's going to be in for a rude awakening if he's, if he's still alive. <laughs> but people that are writing books, the God delusion and some of these other things, they're going to be in for a big shock. They're making big money right now. But they're going to be a big in for a big shock when they realize there is a God in heaven. We'll talk about that in just a little bit. But let's finish here. In verse 21, it says, Whom the heavens must receive till the times of restoration of all things, which God has spoken by the mouth of his holy prophets since the world began. God has a plan that he's going to send Jesus Christ back to this earth. He's going to set up a government on this earth that's going to change the world that you can be part of. If that's a goal that you set for yourself, if you prepare to participate in that. But you know, there's also a couple of warnings in the Bible. Turn to Matthew 24. We've talked about promises. We've talked about opportunities. But I want to talk just a little bit about some of the challenges that we face as Christians when God brings us into contact with the church that he's raised up. Matthew chapter 24. These are scriptures that apply to us today that we've got to deal with. But again, there's a timeless aspect of this. Christians in the first century had to deal with the same thing. Let's begin about verse 3, probably. It says, Now as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things be? He was talking about the destruction of the temple. And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? How will we know we're getting close to the end of the age? The period of time that God has allotted to human beings to do their own thing. And then Jesus mentions a whole series of things. You know, people today are being told, you know, Christ could come tonight. It might be a hundred years from now. It might be a thousand years from now. Just don't worry about it. You know, just love the Lord. Jesus didn't say that. He said, you watch for this, you watch for this, you watch for this. When you see this all coming together, you better be ready. But notice the first thing that he said here in verse 4. Jesus answered and said to them, take heed, be alert, be aware that no one deceives you. Don't be deceived. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ. I am a Christian. I'm a minister of God and will deceive many. As we will see in the sermon today, the world has been deceived. You're just driving up here today, talking about they're having a live nativity scene at the church just down the road. 
picturing the birth of Jesus Christ. But Jesus wasn't born on December 25th. See, they're they're focused on a totally different Jesus. But they don't understand that. Most people don't. Jesus was warning his own disciples, don't be deceived. There are many people running around today claiming to be uh, ministers of God. Established over 300 different splinter groups that came out of the Worldwide Church of God. Now, they all can't be ministers of God or they would be together. But they're off doing different things. If you have an idea and access to the Internet, you can start a church. And you'll get people to follow you. You just got to come up with some different ideas that attract people. But Jesus is telling his disciples, don't be deceived. In Revelation 12, 9, it talks about there that Satan has deceived the whole world. The Catholic world, the Protestant world, the Jewish world, Buddhists, Confucians, you name it. The whole world has been deceived. Let's turn to 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 8 and 9. And this relates to each of us individually. This is the advice that we read in the Scriptures. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, it says, Be sober, be alert, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. If you've ever watched any of these wildlife films and watched a lion hunt, they get down in the grass and they sneak up on things. And all of a sudden, (laughs) Sorry for you ladies who put your kids to sleep. (laughs) But that's how lions hunt. They get down in the grass and they come up stealthfully. We think Satan walks around with a pitchfork and... And, and, and a tail and a red suit. And say, I'm Satan, you know. I'm going to deceive you. No, he comes in a very stealthy way. He looks good. Might wear a three-piece suit. Might appear as a yuppie. Depends on who he's trying to deceive. He's smooth. And we've got to be careful. We've got to be alert to these things. It says resist him, but you know, you can't resist him if you don't recognize him. We've got to be able to recognize when Satan is working on us. You know, another story I've used over the years is one Friday evening, we're playing with the boys downstairs and we're walking up the stairs and one boy was walking behind the other one and all of a sudden I hear this, And I turned around, and one boy kicked the other one in the stomach. And the one that did the kicking happened to be right behind me. So I put my hand on his shoulder, and I said, Why did you kick your brother? He said, I don't know. He said, I just felt like it. Teachable moment. I said, "Uh, Who do you think would put a thought in your mind like that to kick your brother? Would God put a thought like that in your mind to kick your brother? No. Who do you think might put a thought in your mind to kick your brother? He says, I think I know. (laughs) I said, good. 
One of the lessons we have to learn in life is not to act on every thought that comes into our mind. We've got to recognize where the thought comes from and then just kick it away. No, I'm not going to do that. So we've got to recognize where some of these thoughts come from. The Satan will try and beam into our minds. We've got to be alert. We've got to recognize. As Peter says here, resist him, stand fast in the faith. Don't go for this idea. Don't buy into that idea. Stand fast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. So we've got to watch out for the deceptions that Satan uses. What I'd like to do now is talk about four major deceptions, four major ways that Satan has deceived the world. Again, I'm preaching to the choir here. Most of you are aware of this, but not everybody is. But we need to be able to explain these things as the opportunity arises. And then I want to talk about four major restorations, things that we're going to have an opportunity to change and that we can begin to prepare to change. So in summary, I guess we could say we're talking about four major lessons that we need to learn if we want to enter into the kingdom of God. If we learn these lessons, we're going to be like the wise parrot. (laughs) It jumped out of the freezer. I'll never do that again. If we don't learn the lessons, we're going to be like the turkey in the freezer. But you know what happens to the turkey when they bring him out of the freezer? It goes into the oven. (laughs) And it gets cooked. And that's not something we want to do. Okay, let's look quickly at four of these major ways that Satan has deceived the world. Four major ways that Satan has deceived the world. The first way is that Satan has deceived the world to worship false gods or other gods. You know, when the Israelites came out of Egypt, God led them out of Egypt. And he demonstrated that he was a God that intervenes in history. He brought the plagues on Egypt. He separated the Red Sea. He delivered the Israelites. When they came before Sinai and the thunderings and lightnings were there, they realized God was real. This was not like the God of the Egyptians. You know, in the... uh, The magicians in Egypt were able to imitate the first several miracles of uh, Moses. But about the third or fourth one, Moses did something. They couldn't repeat it, and they said, this is the hand of God. This is not like our gods. This is a very different God. When the Israelites came before Sinai, they realized they were before the real God, who had incredible power. What's interesting is when you go to Exodus chapter 32, this was after we read about uh, God giving the Ten Commandments and so on to Moses. Let's go to Exodus 32. While Moses was up on the mountain receiving instructions from God, notice what the Israelites did. I remember when I first came into the church 40-some years ago, I decided I'm going to read through the Bible. So I read through Genesis, got through Exodus, And then I began to realize, what's the matter with these people? 
what is the matter with these people? They were delivered supernaturally by God, and then they turn around and, and go off in a different direction. Genesis, excuse me, Exodus 32, verse 1 says, Now when the people saw that Moses delayed coming down from the mountain, this was the Moses who had brought them out of Egypt, who had raised his hands and parted the Red Sea. When he delayed coming down from the mountain, the people gathered together to Aaron and said, Come, make us gods. Come, make us gods that shall go before us. For as for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what's become of him. (laughs) He's been gone for weeks. And you think, what's going on here? Now, we, we, we kind of feel badly for these people when, you talk, when we talk about in just a little bit what we have done over the years as God's people. And I'm talking over centuries. We've basically done the same thing. Uh, <clears throat> you can read through the rest of the chapter here. Basically, they had Aaron make a, a god, uh, a golden calf, and they bowed down to worship it, and then they got into a big wild party. Moses came down, crashed the, the, the tablets that he had. And I think as a result here, uh, about 3,000 people died that day as a result of you know, turning away from God. These are some of the consequences, things that have happened to people. People of God. Turn now to uh, Deuteronomy chapter 12. Now, in Deuteronomy, Moses is talking with the children of the Israelites, the second generation that came out of Egypt. They saw their parents mess up and have to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. Then just before they went into the promised land, Moses gives them these instructions. And this is part of the instructions. Chapter 12, verse 1. Now, these are the statutes and the judgments which you shall carefully observe in the land which the Lord your God of your fathers is giving to you to possess. All the days of you live on the earth, you shall utterly destroy all the places where the nations which you shall dispossess served their gods. Verse 3, you shall destroy their altars, their sacred pillars, burn their wooden images, In other words, don't follow their example. Don't worship their gods. Don't do things their way. Now down towards the end of that chapter, beginning in verse 20, start in verse 28. Now, these are instructions that God gave to, Mo- to that Moses gave to God's people. The children that came out of Egypt saw their parents mess up. He's saying, look, learn from their example. Don't do it like they did. You're going into the promised land. Now, here are the instructions, verse 28. Observe and obey all these words which I command you, that it may go well with you. The people today are being told the laws of God are a burden. Yeah, that's not what we read here. You know, obey these things so it may go well with you and your children after you forever. 
when you do what is good and right in the sight of the Lord your God. And when the Lord your God cuts off from before you the nations which you go in to dispossess, and you displace them and dwell in them, take heed to yourself that you are not ensnared to follow them after they are destroyed from before you, and that you do not inquire after their gods, saying, how do these nations serve their gods? I'll do the same thing. They were told, no, don't do that. You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. For every abomination to the Lord, which he hates, they have done to their gods. For they even burn their own sons and daughters in the fire to God. Whatever I command you, be careful to observe it, that you should not add to it nor take away from it. It's very sobering when you read through then different parts of the Old Testament. You go through the book of, uh, of Joshua. It mentions there, Joshua is told, you be strong. Be of good courage. Don't add to my laws. Don't take away from my laws. Just do it. Go to the end of the book of Joshua. and said the people followed God as long as Joshua lived. Then you get into the book of Judges. Let's notice quickly in Judges chapter 2. What happened after Joshua disappeared from the scene? Strong leadership vanished. And people began doing their own thing. Okay, in Joshua, excuse me, in Judges, let's begin about verse 7. It says, So the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders. These were ones that Joshua trained who had seen the great works of the Lord before that he had done for Israel. Then jump down here to uh, verse 10. When all the generation that had gathered to their fathers, that is all of Joshua's generation and the immediate generation that followed him, another generation arose after them who did not know the Lord nor the work which he had done. Apparently the parents didn't tell the kids, didn't transmit the values properly. You know, you can lose the truth in one generation. You can lose the truth in one generation if it's not passed effectively to the next generation coming along. And that's part of a challenge for us today as parents and as a church. Verse 10, when the generation had been gathered to their fathers, another generation arose that didn't know the Lord. Verse 11, then the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. They began to worship other gods. And they forsook the Lord God of their fathers who had brought them out of the land of Egypt and they followed other gods from among the gods of the people who were all around them. And they bowed down to them and provoked the God, the Lord God to anger. It's interesting then that God left peoples in the land of Canaan who worshipped other gods as a test for the Israelites. He said, you didn't run them out, you didn't chase them away, you didn't do what I told you, I'm going to leave them there. And you're going to have to make choices. If you follow them, there's going to be consequences. If you don't follow them, you build the character, you follow my instructions, then there's going to be blessings for you. 
You can read in 2 Kings chapter 12 where Jeroboam, in order to keep the people of Israel from going back to Jerusalem to worship in the temple, he set up some calves up there. And he said, you know, you don't need to get down there for the Feast of, of Tabernacles in the seventh month. In the eighth month, we'll have our own festival up here. He set up other gods, established other holy days, and it mentions a couple of different places in uh, Second Kings that, Jer- that uh, Jeroboam caused Israel to sin. None of the kings of Israel, the northern ten tribes that followed him, were good kings. They were all off in a wrong direction. His example was powerful in a wrong direction. You know, they began instituting other things. You know, the same thing happened in the early church in spite of the warnings that God gave. You can go to Isaiah chapter 1, verses 14, 15, and 16, where God says, I hate your Sabbaths and your holy days. Now, he's not talking about the biblical Sabbath. He's not talking about the biblical holy days. He's talking about the days that uh, Jeroboam changed. Your Sabbaths and your holy days, he says, I I hate, I despise. Amos chapter 5, verse 21, and Amos chapter 8 says the same thing. This is how God views these pagan-inspired days. Now, you might ask, what does that have to do with us? This happened a long time ago. In the early church, the church of the apostles... That church kept the Sabbath. Paul kept the Sabbath following Christ's example. He kept the holy days, 1 Corinthians 5. About 100 A.D., in and around Rome, they began pushing Sunday worship. A little bit later began pushing Easter. A little bit later began pushing Christmas on December 25th. The early church never kept any of those days, Easter, Christmas, Sunday, they kept very different days. Let me just read you a couple of things in terms of proving all things and holding fast to what is right and true. The Catholic Church, or what became the Catholic Church, basically began changing the truth, getting away from the truth. And it's not hard to nail these things down. I brought a couple of books along up here, and it would be worth just going on the Internet and either checking some of these out or having some in your own library. One entitled Christmas, A Candid History, written by Bruce David Forbes, uh, written in 2007. He's a professor of religious studies at at a university. Now, these are his comments. He says, Christmas in the first two or three centuries, or excuse me, Christians in the first two or three centuries did not celebrate Christmas. From the beginning, Christmas combined pre-existing midwinter festivals, often prone to excess, with an overlay of Christian meaning. You paint it with a different brush. You paint it with a different brush. Make it look like something else. The birthday of the sun god was changed into the birthday of God the sun in a general context of winter celebrations. He doesn't have an axe to grind. He's just explaining this is history. Another book entitled Christmas Customs and Traditions, 
their history and significance. The author is a Clement Miles. He makes a couple of interesting statements. He says, The earliest celebration of the birth of Christ on December 25th took place in Rome about the middle of the 4th century, about 350 A.D. From Rome, Christmas spread throughout the West. And then he asks the question, Why did the church choose December 25th? His answer, The real reason was that it fell on the pagan festival of the unconquered sun, the winter solstice, the birthday of the Syrian sun god Baal. And yet the Israelites were told, Don't do those things. Also identified as Mithra, the god of the uh, Persian god, a warrior god. He says, Pre-Christian winter festivals, the other side of Christmas, with its many traditional observances, though sometimes colored by Christianity, have nothing to do with the birth of the Redeemer. These traditions represent the old paganism which Christianity failed to extinguish. We find many pagan practices concealed beneath a superficial Christianity, often under the mantle of some saint. In other words, the saints' days preserve some of these pagan customs. Many of these traditions were never Christianized. They just brought them over into the church. The church thundered against these traditions in the days of her youth, but as she grew old and tolerant, she has long since ceased to attack them. We just accept them because they couldn't wipe them out. Where did these customs come from? The Roman Saturnalia, a time when Saturn ruled supposedly over the world when everything was happy. Candles, clay images of people and animals, greenery, festivities, feasting, drinking, biscuits and human shapes, gingerbread men, cookies, gift-giving, social equality, social inversion, where they elected a mock king, the lord of misrule, who gave ridiculous commands and people had to do them just to have a wild time. This is where these things came from. You know these things. But the world doesn't seem to uh, understand. The idea of Santa Claus that was mentioned in the announcements. Uh, This idea of Santa Claus and reindeer and a sleigh flying through the sky. Where did something like that come from? There was a Greek god, Helios, who drove a chariot through the sky. The chariot was... Uh, pulled by uh, four or five horses that just floated through the sky. And this guy was a a sun god. This is where these things came from. They're given different names today. The final thing I want to mention is from a book entitled From Sabbath to Sunday. This was written by Samuel Bakioki. He's dead now, but uh, he was a Seventh-day Adventist scholar. The book is the product of a thesis that he did at the Gregorian Institute in Rome. The Catholics gave him his doctor's degree. And he basically proved in the book that the Catholic Church changed the Sabbath to Sunday. And the Catholics say, we're very glad to acknowledge what Mr. Bakayoki says because he's proving that we had the authority to change the Sabbath. That's where these things came from. But notice what he says about Christmas. He says, the real reason for the choice of December 25th was the pagan feast of the birthday of the sun which was celebrated in those days with great splendor. Now, listen to this. 
the Church of Rome to facilitate the acceptance of the Christian faith by pagans found it convenient to institute December 25th as the Feast of the Birth of Christ to divert these pagan masses from keeping the pagan feast or keeping the the birthday of the sun as a pagan day because it was celebrated on the same day. So in order to facilitate their conversion to Christianity, to make it easier for them to become Christians, they could keep their celebrations on December 25th. Again, you know these things. But there are thousands of people that are going to gather here in Charlotte and other places around the world on December 25th and think they're worshiping Jesus Christ. And yet when you read those scriptures that we read back in Deuteronomy, it says, don't do those things. Don't ask how these nations worship their gods. Don't do that. Don't worship me that way. Again, we've got other books that we publish. You know, Dr. Meredith's book on which day is a Christian Sabbath basically quotes Catholic sources as saying that <laughs> there's nothing in the Bible that tells us to change from Saturday to Sunday. We have changed that on our own authority. So these are some of the deceptions that Satan has fostered on the world. He's pointed the world towards another God. He's pointed the world towards different holy days, actually to holidays instead of holy days. He's changed the Sabbath. One of the interesting arguments that is advanced by some scholars, they say that, you know, the, the early church began keeping Sunday, and some people want to link that with uh, worshiping on the day of the sun, but there's no evidence that sun worship uh, existed in the Roman Empire before two or 300 A.D., well, this is not exactly true. Turn, if you would, in your Bibles back to Second Kings, chapter 23. The Israelites got involved with these things in Canaan, in the Middle East, long before Paul came along. Second Kings 23. See, the Bible gives us insights. It records some vital information to let us know what was going on at that time. Second Kings 23, verse 11 talks about the reforms of Josiah. Now, Josiah was probably 26, 27 years old at this time. He was a young man. And yet this was the impact that he had on his nation. He began to change things, turn things right side up. Verse 11 says, Then he removed the horses that the kings of Judah had dedicated to the sun. You might think here, Helios, this Greek god, and again, there's earlier precedents for that. Uh, at the entrance of the house of the Lord by the chamber of, the, uh, of Nathan Malik, the officer who was in the court, and he burned the chariots of the sun with fire. So he got rid of the horses uh, that were dedicated to the sun, and he burned the chariots of the sun with fire. And again, this Greek god Helios rode in a chariot through the sky, driven by or led, uh, pulled by four horses that could fly through the air. In other words, these traditions seem to continue. Let's go to Ezekiel very quickly. Ezekiel chapter 8 and verse 16. Now these were the prophets. Ezekiel was basically in Babylon, but he was talking basically to the Jews and to Israelites. So there's a futuristic aspect of these prophecies. 
But this is what the the Jews were doing at the time of Ezekiel, Ezekiel 8, verse 16. He has this vision of being carried up to Jerusalem, and this is what he sees. So it says, He brought me to the inner court of the Lord's house, and there at the door of the temple of the Lord, between the porch and the altar, were about twenty men with their backs toward the temple of the Lord and their faces towards the east, and they were worshiping the sun towards the east. Basically an Easter sunrise service or a sunrise service. Sun worshiping in ancient Israel. And this is essentially then what happened to the Sabbath uh, in the early years of the church, first two or three hundred years, that the worshiping on Sunday was instituted. And they came up with theological reasons but what they were doing was continuing pagan practices. So the deception that Satan has fostered on the world has to do with worshiping false gods, changing the holy days to holidays, changing the Sabbath to Sunday. And a fourth major deception was changing the laws of God, getting rid of the laws of God. Just not following the laws of God anymore, telling people that they don't apply anymore. In a number of scriptures here in Daniel chapter 7, verse 25, it says this fourth kingdom that Daniel saw would come along and change times and law. Change times and law. And this is, in essence, what the Catholic Church has done, and the Protestants have picked it up from the Catholic Church. They've changed the commandments. They've changed the laws. They've changed the holy days, changed the Sabbath. Jesus makes a number of interesting comments in Matthew 15, verses 3 through 6, and also Mark chapter 7, through verses 6 through 9, where he talks about to the Jews of his time. He says, you're... You transgress the commandments of God in order to keep your own traditions. You transgress the commandments of God to keep your own traditions. You say the law doesn't apply anymore. You say that you can keep Sunday instead of the Sabbath. That you don't need to keep those Jewish feasts. You can keep Christmas. And this is what we're doing today. In the epistles class that we are just, just about to complete, I was going through a book the other day on how different theologians have viewed the laws of God or the law of God. And how, how they viewed the purpose of the law. And it's interesting, Paul makes a number of statements how the law is just and holy. The law explains what sin is. Thomas Aquinas, probably one of the most influential thinkers in the Middle Ages, was a Catholic priest. He said that the law is, is good, but it's imperfect because it forces people to behave. Now, when you think about that, the law doesn't force people to behave. You know, the Israelites were given a choice in Deuteronomy 30. It says, I've set before you life and death. Obedience and disobedience. Choose life. Nobody's forcing anybody to do anything. But there are consequences when we go contrary to the laws of God. Just like if you go contrary to the uh, law of gravity. If you think you can jump off the roof up there and just float through the air, (laughs) it's not going to happen. The law of gravity will take over and you'll come crashing down to the earth. 
You break the laws of God. You commit adultery, fornication. You lie, cheat, steal. There will be consequences. Might not come immediately, but there will be consequences. Thomas Aquinas was wrong. The law doesn't force people to be good. We're given a choice to obey or not to obey. Martin Luther said the purpose of the law was to terrify people, (laughs) to make you want to (laughs) repent. The law doesn't terrify people. The Bible talks about if you walk in the law, you can walk in liberty. You can walk in liberty. You can be free from consequences if you don't break the laws of God. You go through the book of Galatians, or a number of scriptures there where it talks about being under the curse of the law and Christ came to relieve us from the curse of the law. Paul was not talking about the Ten Commandments. He was not talking about the, the laws of God in that sense. He was talking about the rabbinical traditions that were added to it. You know, the world today has got this all mixed up. And we need to understand these things because we're going to have the opportunity to straighten out the world one of these days. The law is not bondage. And yet people read those scriptures in Galatians and they think Paul is talking about the Ten Commandments, which he is not. These are just examples of how Satan has deceived the world. The law is not bad. The law is not bondage. The holy days, the Sabbath, are not burdens. They're blessings when we understand them. Let's look now at some opportunities that are really right in front of us if we can take advantage of those opportunities, if we can see them for what they are. In Malachi 3.1, let's turn back there just quickly. This is what's coming down the road that you and I can be part of if we set our goals right, if we're focused on the right things. Malachi Chapter 3, verse 1. It's a prophecy. It says, Behold, I will send my messenger. Notice messenger is not capitalized here. It's not talking about Jesus Christ. It's talking about a person or an organization that would come prior to his return. I'll send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. That is, prepare the way before Jesus Christ. Someone, some organization is going to be preparing the way for the return of Jesus Christ. And Mr. Armstrong felt he was trying to do that, but he also said the church's role is to prepare to do that. To point people back to the truth, to explain the purpose of God, to explain about the holy days, explain about the Sabbath, explain how the world has been deceived, and point people to the truth. In Matthew chapter 17, verse 11, again, building on the prophecy in Malachi. Jesus was asked about that prophecy. Uh, Verse 10, let's start there. His disciples asked him, why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? This is what uh, Malachi was talking about. Now notice Jesus' answer. Jesus answered and said to them, Indeed, Elijah is coming first and will restore all things. But I say to you, Elijah has already come. 
Now, he's saying two different things here. He's saying Elijah's already come in the person of John the Baptist, but he also says Elijah is coming and will restore all things. Talking about a future time. And some people argue that Mr. Armstrong was the only Elijah. You know, we'll have to wait and see. He died over 20-some years ago. There's still water to go over the dam yet. There were times when he thought he was Elijah and other times when he said the church is going to fulfill this role. We'll have to see how it's ultimately going to be fulfilled. But these are things that are coming. A restoration of all things. That time is coming. You know, we're running out of time here, but some of the restorations that are going to occur very quickly. The world is going to know who the true God is. I'd encourage you to go back and read Ezekiel chapter 7 where he talks about your time has run out. And he's talking to the people of Israel. He says desolation is coming. Disaster upon disaster is going to come. Because you've reached the end of your rope. And at the end of that chapter it says they will know. They will know, the world is going to know that I am the Lord, that I'm in charge, that I determine where history goes. The world is going to know and is going to understand. That time is coming. The world is going to know who God is. You know, there's a prophecy in Amos chapter 3, verse 7. says, God does nothing until he reveals it first through the mouths of his prophets. The United States is going to know why we're going down the tubes. They're going to be told. And it's probably going to be this work that will tell them. They're going to need to understand why the consequences are coming. We've got a job to do. We're going to have to be courageous to do that. The holy days are going to be kept again. You can read that in Zechariah 14. It says, The nation that does not come up to Jerusalem to keep the Feast of Tabernacles is not going to get any rain. They don't come up the next year. Other things are going to happen. The whole world is going to be taught how to keep the holy days and how to keep the Sabbaths. Isaiah 66 You can look it up later. Verses 22 through 24 says, From Sabbath to Sabbath These things are going to be kept. The world is going to know. They're going to learn the plan of God. They're going to learn God's way of life. Notice in Isaiah chapter 2, quickly. Isaiah chapter 2, verses 2 through 4. This is talking about the restoration that's going to take place and that you can have a part in if you're preparing for this. Isaiah chapter 2, verses 2 to 4. This is what's going to happen on this earth. It says, Now it shall come to pass, verse 2, in the latter days, the end of the age, that the mountain or the kingdom of God, the mountain of God's house, shall be established on top of the mountains over everything and shall be exalted above the hills and nations will flow to it. They will be drawn to it. They, They will want to go up there. And many people will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord. This is where God's people are going to be, the teachers, the educators. Let's go up to the house of God, and he will teach us his ways. 
Someone's going to have the opportunity to teach mankind, different parts of the world, Africa, Asia, Canada, America, Charlotte, about the truth. If we are convinced that it is the truth, if we've proven that it works, that it's God's way, and we shall walk in his paths, for out of Zion shall go forth the law, not the rabbinical laws, not the oral laws, but the laws of God about the Sabbath, about the holy days, about how to live a Christian life. These are the things that are coming down the road that you can be part of if you set some goals in your life. I want to be there. I want to be part of that. We're told in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 8 through 15, we're told there to, to come out of this world, come out of the darkness and redeem the time, make the most of the opportunity that you have now. 